Greetings and welcome to the Animal Wellness Podcast, the official podcast of Animal Wellness Action. Hi, I'm your host, Joseph Grove. On this show, we talk about animals and the people who care about them and have the ability to improve their lives by influencing culture and supporting pro-animal laws and regulations. To stay up to date with all of our news and information, subscribe to this podcast, receive our free newsletters and more, visit animalwellnessaction.org. You know, um, I want to apologize to our listeners. I I may sound a little more uh, uh, hoarse or nasally than usual, so please forgive me uh, for that. I really was worried I wasn't going to make it, so over the weekend I started you know, giving away my belongings. I almost gave away my signed copy of the Humane Economy, one of Wayne's books, and then oh my, and you, then I realized you're desperate, Joe. You're I, and desperate. then I re- I realized I didn't have a signed copy of Wayne's book, The Humane Economy. So, but that's okay. I'll go to Half Price Books. I'll get one, and the next time I'm in DC, you can sign it for me. I'm gonna send you one, Joe. <laughs> you, if there's anyone who who richly deserves it, it's you. No, 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 no. Just, just, just kidding. So, uh, but just a heads up to our listeners on that. And also, before we get into the to the um, uh, gravity of the show, the meat of it, uh, I, I got to give a, a props, uh, a major kudos uh, to Marty, who was just named as one of the top 250 lobbyists in Washington D.C. There are like more than 30,000 lobbyists, and and Marty, so congratulations! I believe you were the only representative among all animal welfare advocate groups. So that's really very impressive, and I just had to say congratulations to you. Yes, thank you, Joe. No, it was a big surprise. I was elated to wake up that morning and find out I had been included on the list with former U.S. Senate Majority Leader Trent Lott and former Senate Majority Leader Tom Daschle and many others. So. I felt like our work had really paid off and we'd done a lot. And I am just a little bit curious if that now makes me part of the swamp, though. <laughs> well, you know, if they start to really eventually drain it, you you just hang on like that bug that lives in my bathtub that will never go down. You hang on, Marty. You hang on. So, you know, I think when most people think of lobbyists, they imagine, you know, Boris and Natasha out trying to kill Bullwinkle and that squirrel, right? So, so what makes a good lobbyist, Marty? You know, they're not all to be vilified, clearly. Well, you know, I think the most important thing for me is working hard, and that's applied in anything that you do, whatever the business model or nonprofit is. So, you know, never giving up for just a moment and staying after day after day and also making sure that, you know, our activity in the press matches what we're doing on Capitol Hill so people see what we're doing and are also able to convey that message to others. So those two uh, particular areas, the actual lobbying with communication are very important. As Wayne knows, he's done this for many years as well. And then having, most importantly, the tremendous advocates out there that contact their members of Congress every day by the phone, by action alert, by email, whatever the case may be, because we couldn't do any of this without you all that are out there supporting us in the field, contacting those legislators, and also donating to help us fund our efforts each year, which we're trying to do for 2020 and funding uh, the upcoming year. So it's a big part of everyone out there that's been helping us that makes us successful. Yeah, and this would be a good and time Joe, to ask I, I you about... Want... Go ahead, Wayne. No, I was just going to say, Joe, that Marty is so hardworking and he richly deserves this recognition. And I think one other element in, in addition to his experience and his hard work Marty's from Southern Alabama. 
He worked for the Walking Horse Association. He was actually on the other side of some of these issues on animal welfare before he uh, really got square and straight on animal protection. He came to Washington not for money, uh, not for the notoriety, but because he wanted, wanted to do good for animals. And I think that authenticity and that sincerity and that doing good for all animals it has also been really a distinguishing feature of his work. So I'm, I'm just super excited about the recognition he received. You know, I've been on a movie watching binge lately, particularly while I've been under the weather. And one of the movies I do own is The Hangover. And Wayne, you and I were talking about this film uh, the other day because in it is a demonstration, or at least a representation, of the issue we're going to spend the rest of the podcast discussing, and that is private ownership of exotic animals, big cats in particular. You know, it's a big gag in the film when, uh, you know, the the partiers wake up uh, in their penthouse one morning, and it's been clearly a night of debauchery. One bit of evidence of that debauchery is that roaming around uh, this penthouse suite is, uh, is a tiger. Uh, and, you know, it turns out to be Mike Tyson's, and, and it's a great big ball of laughs. Uh, but I, I suspect our special guest today uh, would not uh, say it is such a, a big matter to laugh about. Uh, and that special guest is Carol Baskin. Uh, she is the founder and CEO of Big Cat Rescue. Uh, she has over 100-plus volunteers and interns from around the world, 20 staff and contractors. She runs the Big Cat Rescue in Tampa, Florida. She's also host of the Cat Chat. You got to be careful saying this. Cat Chat Show. I almost said something we'd have to edit out, but it's the Cat Chat Show. Uh, so, Carol, thanks for uh, for being with us, and and you're kind of the expert on big cat rescue. Well, thank you so much for having me today. Good, glad you're here, and we want to talk about uh, what it is you do. Uh, we want to talk about uh, the website you have, and we also want to talk to you about the big cat. Public Safety Act, which I know much of your website and your activities uh, go to uh, support. So, um, Carol, tell us how you got interested in big cats and what people need to know about their predicament these days. I've always loved domestic cats, and it's always been my goal to end the suffering of domestic cats and the euthanasia of domestic cats in shelters through aggressive spay and neuter. But before I managed to get down that path very far, I was um, sort of taken off path by ending up at a exotic animal auction where I was buying llamas to green belt some land that I had. And the guy next to me was bidding on a six month old bobcat. And I had done bobcat rehab and release since I was 17 years old. And so I leaned over to him and I said, when that cat grows up, she's gonna tear your face off. And he said, I'm a taxidermist. I'm just gonna club her in the head in the parking lot and make a den decoration out of her. And so I broke down crying and my late husband um, at the time started bidding on the cat and we brought her home. But because she had been declawed and she was from another state, she couldn't be set free. And that led us the following year to rescuing 56 bobcats and lynx from a fur farm. And then 28 the following year and 22 more the following year. And that got all of the cats out of fur farms in the United States. But then people started calling and saying, would you take my lion? Would you take my tiger? And I had no idea that people had lions and tigers, but I thought, this is an easy thing to fix. This can't be right. People can't be having lions and tigers and leopards and cougars and bobcats and all of these animals. 
So I'll fix that and then I'll get back to the domestic cat issue. And so we're still fixing that, <laughs> but I think we're getting close. We're really, we're really zeroing in on it with this big cat public safety act. Wayne, how big a problem is this? Are more people than ever uh, getting into owning the, these big cats as, as pets? Well, the policies are strengthening throughout the United States. I mean, thanks to Carol Baskin and her team at Big Cat Rescue, which is really the preeminent um, exotic animal advocacy and caretaking organization in the country. I have so much admiration for her and Howard Baskin, her husband, who um, volunteers for the organization in a leadership capacity as well, and the entire team there. They have tens of thousands of people who come visit the sanctuary and learn about this problem uh, every year. And a lot of those folks then take action to have local, state, and now federal policies. You know, it's thousands of animals, Joe, uh, thousands of big cats, but of course there are also primates. There are other exotic animals um, whom people keep as pets or they keep them in roadside zoos. They have petting operations. And, you know, some of it, I think is that people are fascinated by these animals. They're truly beautiful and remarkable and athletic. And I think they narrowly look at their fascination and lose their common sense in terms of how they're possibly going to care for these animals adequately, uh, especially in the long term. And they also just disregard what this means for those animals and others caught up in this trade. You know, I've said to Carol before, I mean, Sometimes it turns out badly for the people. They may get hurt by one of these wild animals, but it almost always turns out badly for the animals. It is a very rare circumstance for one of these animals to get to Big Cat Rescue in Tampa or to get to one of the other sanctuaries that exist. Even then, I'm sure Carol would admit, the environments that they work to create where they do the best that they can in terms of the accredited sanctuaries like Big Cat Rescue cannot possibly replicate the the circumstances that these animals would have in the wild where they're stimulated and free roaming. Uh, so it's always a bad outcome to have these animals. We domesticated animals like dogs and cats thousands of years ago. That accustomed them to live in our environments, to have social interactions that are generally quite safe for them and for us. To have these big cats as pets is a problem. But, you know, I'd kick it to Carol to try to uh, assess the scale of it. You know, it's really difficult because these animals fall into regulatory limbo. Uh, the U.S. Department of Ag Agriculture, the state ag departments don't really account for these animals. The Interior Department at the federal level and the state fish and wildlife agencies don't account for them. So it's really kind of a free-for-all in states that don't have strict policies. And we know it's thousands of animals who are uh, kept in private settings and as I said, it just doesn't turn out well for any of them. Carol? Wayne is absolutely right. The, the main thing that they ask us is how many big cats are there? And nobody knows because there's no overarching government agency that is keeping account of all of these animals that are privately owned all across America. And so we don't know except through anecdotal evidence. And he, Wayne's also right that we have seen um, because of the fact that there have been more states and localities that have been banning or passing partial bans on the private possession of these animals that it is starting to rein it in. So to give you an example, this 
the bill that we're currently working on is just closing a loophole from a bill that was launched, I believe, in 1998 or 99 that finally passed in 2003 called the Captive Wildlife Safety Act. And when that bill passed in December of 2003, we had to turn away 312 big cats. In addition to the ones that we were able to rescue, there were 312 that we just said, the inn is full, we can't take them. And every other year that number was doubling. But as more states started passing these bans and partial bans, what we saw was when the Captive Wildlife Safety Act passed, the very next year, instead of it being 600 cats, it dropped to like 110 and it continued to drop. So the numbers of these animals that are being bred and put into these very dangerous situations is dropping but we still need to pass this bill to close that loophole and to require, and what this bill will do is it stops the cub handling and it requires people who have the animals um, as pets to actually register the animals they have, they can keep them, they just can't buy or breed more. And over the next 10 years or so, those cats will die out in captivity. Cub petting is really a big focus of the Big Cat uh, Public Safety Act because roadside zoos, you know, breed or acquire a juvenile lion or tiger or some other uh, wild animal. And they set up basically a commercial operation where people can come in and physically handle the animal. It's, a, it's an interactive wildlife experience for people where they may handle the animal for a few minutes or a half an hour. And, you know, that sounds all well and good if there's supervision and people are watching the animal. But the reality is these animals are only handleable uh, for just a few months. If it's a lion or a tiger, they turn into a large-bodied, powerful, unpredictable animal. And what happens is what does the, what does the roadside zoo, zoo do with that animal at that time? Well, they probably dump the animal into the exotic animal trade and somebody gets the animal for whatever purpose, but in so many cases, there is no place for the animal. And that's where Carol comes in, that's where other animal welfare groups come in, where we then have to construct facilities and then have veterinarians care for the animal and other animal caretakers and feed the animal. These animals may live 15 or 20 years. This is an enormous unfunded mandate placed on the animal welfare community by people who made a silly and stupid and reckless decision to acquire an animal, to use the animal for these commercial purposes. And it may cost our movement tens or 20 or $30 million a year just to care for these animals. Why should our movement have to bear this financial burden? And why shouldn't we have policies to forbid this to really reduce this liability that animal welfare groups kind of take on voluntarily, but they do it not because they want to, but because they feel they must in order to give these animals a decent life after someone put them in a horribly dangerous circumstance. Can you imagine if all of the money that went into taking care of these cats and a big cat rescue, it costs us $10,000 per year per cat just for the food and veterinary costs. That doesn't include any of the overhead of the sanctuary. So when you consider all of these sanctuaries that have these huge expenses in taking care of these animals for the rest of their lives after they've been used for about a 12 to, maybe a 12 to 16 week span, 
if all of that was going back into saving them in the wild, we could actually save them in the wild. The the horrors we've been very sanitary about describing. I think you know their fates, but it is is. Cubs, they're they're ripped from their mother at a premature age. These are not allowed to wean naturally, as I understand it. They are deprived of a lot of the benefits of of mother's milk, uh, just the way one might rip a puppy away from uh, his or her mother at at an early age, or a human infant even, uh, to try and wean it uh, prematurely. Uh, Shortly after they are graduated out of the the petting uh, program, they end up in, in tiny barren cages. Uh, they're often bred repeatedly, which creates its own set of harms uh, in, in terms of inbreeding. I mean, all in all, it's just brutish, nasty, and short, as one might describe their life, but for rescue organizations such as yours. Am I, am I on the money there? It's an absolutely horrible life, both for the cub who's ripped away from its mother and for the mother, any mammal mother, wants to protect its cub. And I mean, there's a phrase, the tiger mom. I mean, they are the most protective of all animals toward their offspring. And yet they're being forced to have their cubs taken away from them and then speed bred, kept in very tiny, dismal uh, enclosures. And sanctuaries are not the answer. Even in the best of the sanctuaries, and giving them as much space and enrichment as we possibly can, it's nothing compared to what they should have in the wild. These cats would roam hundreds of square miles. They would be able to select their own mates and choose what they're having for dinner and just everything that makes them who they are. We are depriving them of that by having them in cages. Mm -hmm. One question I bet you frequently ask is, well, why not just put them back in the wild then? Can't you just take this you know, Mike Tyson's tiger and put him on a, a plane to some African country and, and say, live free and, and prosper? The problem with that is that it takes the mother tiger many months, sometimes years, to train her cubs everything that she they need to know to survive in the wild. And that would go for lions or any big cat species. And so these mother cats have never had the opportunity to raise their cubs in captivity because they're pulled away and used as cub petting props as soon as they can possibly be used. And in addition to that, if we were to try and do that, like we do rehab and release here at the sanctuary for native bobcats, but if we really screw that up and we somehow imprint on that cat in a way that causes that cat to come up to a person after we release them, it's probably going to get the cat killed, but it's not going to get a person killed. Whereas a tiger or a lion that has been raised around people and has no fear of them will just come right up to people for food and will ultimately end up killing them. And what happens a lot of times in situations with wild cats is that if one wild cat has gone rogue and killed livestock or killed people, then people turn and they kill the first cat they see. They don't know who it is that's causing the problem. So you end up impacting the, the wild populations negatively. So in addition to the fact that these cats were all inbred in captivity and crossbred, people have a fascination for white tigers. And the only way you can get that is through purposely inbreeding. And so you end up with these cats that have no conservation value and were born in the United States. So they're not native to India, even though that may have been part of where their heritage came from. A lot of them are crossbred between Russian and Indian cats. But there's just, there's just no way to return these cats to the wild. They have no hunting skills. They would not um, survive in 
these situations and they would create more problems for people and the other animals there if that were to happen. Sure. I want to come back to you in a moment, Carol, and talk about uh, how it is you do work with these uh, these cats once they're at your facility. But I want to go to Marty for a second, uh, who really is on top of all things legislative. Uh, Marty, talk about the Big Cat Public Safety Act. Where does that stand? Who's supporting it? What do our listeners need to know about this this act? Well, I think, you know, what's most important is people, you know, realize that to have any legislation passed in a Congress, especially a divided one, you have to have bipartisan support. And I know we've been working on it for a good part of this year. We've ramped up our efforts here at Animal Wellness Action and Animal Wellness Foundation more so in the past few months on big cats. But the um, U.S. Senate has a great number of Democrats that are on the bill Uh, We were fortunate enough to get Senator Susan Collins from Maine. She was the first Republican that joined on, and now she's on board. We got her a few weeks ago. Senator uh, Blumenthal from Connecticut, Wayne's home state, is actually the leader of that Senate bill. And then we have, gosh, already well over 200 co-sponsors in the U.S. House. Uh, Congressman Quigley is the lead sponsor in that chamber, along with um, Brian Fitzpatrick, who's a Republican from Pennsylvania. Um, so we have a bipartisan effort in both chambers, and it's very important that we continue to bring on more Republican co-sponsors. We do have more Democrats than Republicans, especially in the Senate. And I know we've had a number of great meetings over the past few months, Wayne, myself, and others, with many like Senator John Barrasso, who is the chairman of the Committee of Jurisdiction that um, has the authority over moving this bill or holding this bill or whatever the case may be. So um, we feel really good about things in this Congress. And now that we've already moved a couple of bills, we've got one that's already been signed into law. Um, We have one more that will probably be in the appropriations package we're looking at that'll be signed into law. That brings big cats even higher to the top of the list of the things that we can continue working on in this next year, the second year of a two-year Congress. The language of uh, the act is written, it refers to any prohibited wildlife species. Um, Does this act refer to other types of animals than big cats? What does prohibited species mean here? Yeah, this bill bill deals with just big cats. There is a separate bill, uh, Joe, uh, dealing with primates, the Captive Primate Safety Act. And I think the, the notion there is that it's particularly inappropriate to keep these largest of mammalian predators, the big cats, in these private settings. And it's very, very dangerous to have chimpanzees and other primates who are so powerful, also have very sharp teeth, uh, and who are so smart. I mean, the the idea that these animals, you know, live in someone's basement or backyard in a small cage, um, and, you know, they're they're just... Uh, completely disregarded in terms of their behavioral needs, their psychological needs, probably their, their nutritional needs. I mean, it, it's, a, it's a disaster for these animals. And people can say, oh, I love this animal. You know, I'm such a big fan of tigers. We've heard so many cases of these exotic animal owners say how much they love the animals. It has no practical meaning. And, you know, Carol has tangled with uh, some of these folks, and she's had some uh, really remarkable experiences, and I must say some frightening experiences um, in dealing with some of these exotic animal owners and confronting uh, their mania 
um, and their their commercial interest in exploiting these animals. Yeah, yeah Carol, you're you're kind of a badass in my book because. You actually had a contract out on you, if I understand correctly. Can you talk about that? You know, the sentencing is coming up soon, and I've been having to really think back over, you know, what was this like? Because I had had this contract out on my head for many years. Um, I created a site called 911animalabuse.com, and what I did there was a lot of these people had a lot of different names, and so whenever people would ask us about one place or another, we wanted to make sure all the information was there on the page about them. And on this one particular person, I, I found him under 21 different names and aliases and realized from the photos, it was all one person. It was this guy named Joe Schreibvogel. He ran a place called GW Zoo out in Woodywood, Oklahoma, and called himself the Tiger King. He claimed to have over 200 tigers and was, I, I believe, one of probably the top three or four um, as far as a number of cubs that were being bred at this facility and then pimped out all over the country. And so we went after his roadshow, which was um, he would be out 50 weeks a year setting up at malls on Wednesday and through Sunday, he would have people paying $20 a piece to have their picture made with these cubs. And they never got a moment's worth of rest because people were just constantly doing this with him. And he said he could make $27,000 on a weekend with them. And so we would contact the malls and tell them why this was abusive. And over time, we managed to get 200 of these malls to agree not to have his roadshow back. And so what he did in retaliation was he named his roadshow because he was still going to fairs, uh, Big Cat Rescue Entertainment, used our logo and our name and tried to make people think it was us. And so we had to protect our name and we got a million dollar judgment against him and have been chasing him through bankruptcy court ever since. But starting about 2009 or 2010 is when he started making a lot of threats against me because of the work that we were doing to stop the cup handling. And then he started trying to whip his minions into a frenzy saying, you know, she's taking away your rights. She's gonna come get your cub. She's gonna take your dogs and cats and we just have to kill her. And he was constantly trying to get people to kill me. And over the years, he couldn't get any takers, even though he surrounds himself with drunks and derelicts. And so by about 2014 or 2015, people started calling me and saying that he had offered to pay them to kill me. And so we were turning this over to the police and the FBI whenever people would come forward with these complaints, but nothing ever seemed to come of it until finally in 2017, he asked a person that was in the industry, somebody I had run out of Florida for their cub handling thing, but he had asked them to kill me and they ended up um, going to the FBI and to the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and then wearing a wire and gathering information on him. And then in April, he was convicted on two counts of murder for hire and 17 counts of um, wildlife trafficking and abuses, mostly involving the sales of these cubs and also killing tigers in order to make space for younger cubs. Do you look over your shoulder still? I would be in a permanent state of paranoia after that kind of experience. Yeah, I do. I'm always looking at people thinking, you know, this could be somebody that he has managed to get to kill me. And now, even though he's in jail, I don't feel safe because he's got really nothing to lose now. 
and he is part of this network of people that breed cubs and pimp them out and then I believe these cubs are ending up in the illegal trade because they just disappear off the radar entirely. There's, we estimated that there's probably 200 cubs per year that are being bred and handled and then they're not showing up in sanctuaries and they're not showing up in zoos or pseudo zoos or pseudo sanctuaries. So where are all those cats going? And I'm really hoping that all of the notoriety surrounding the murder for hire case will cause the FBI and the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service to look further into what is happening with all of these endangered species. Talk about and Joe, you know, ahead, yeah, yeah. One one of the things that 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 Joe Schreibvogel and other exotic animal dealers, roadside zoo operators, cub petting commercial operators do is they say, oh, we're so great for the cats. You know, we're breeding these animals, we're saving the species. And the reality is, as you noted and you asked Carol, these animals can't be returned to the wild. Uh, They're not part of any species survival program or plan that accredited zoos have to preserve the genetic uh, health of, of animals who are rare in the wild. And there's an attempt uh, to to keep that genetic material intact for the possible release in the best case uh, circumstance sometime in the future. I mean, it's just a bunch of hocus pocus. These folks are not contributing to conservation. They are harming animal welfare. They're putting their workers at risk. They're putting patrons at risk. And they're also burdening uh, the animal welfare community with thousands of animals that we are forced to take care of for the remainder of their lives with no commercial benefit to any of those organizations. So many sanctuaries go belly up because they can't maintain a flow of contributions to keep these animals fed. Just housing is incredible. Uh, one of my former organizations, we got four uh, tigers from a road, roadside zoo in Kansas. We had to construct a facility for four tigers. It cost us $700,000. Why should we have to do this? Why shouldn't we have a policy in place in the United States to stop people from trafficking in these animals for the pet trade and for cub petting? Another group of animals I see photographed for these kinds of photos, dolphins. I don't want to get off on dolphins long, but is it kind of an analogous situation with our aquatic uh, friends? Do they suffer many of the same ills and rescue needs? Yes, I mean there there are some differences, but in general, what you're doing is you're you're putting an animal, a wild animal, in a captive setting, and subjecting him or her or the group of them to you know human touching and to interactions that that the animal just doesn't want, generally speaking, and you know it it just doesn't turn out well for the animals in a in a general sense. There are, uh, you know, really strict standards that accredited zoos observe not to interact with animals. I mean, the, the best zoos say we should have protected contact, which means no contact at all. So the way that the animals are fed, the enrichment that they experience is supposed to avoid any human interaction. And, you know, we see every year, you know, a couple of cases of people, you know, walking into enclosures with animals, and that shouldn't be happening either. But we say, my gosh, how silly and how dangerous that is for a person to be in that 
situation, yet we have thousands of people who are voluntarily putting themselves in close proximity to animals, um, putting, putting themselves at risk and others. I mean, Joe, you and I talked about cases where, you know, animals escaped, um, and then there were horrible outcomes for these animals, whether it was in Zanesville, uh, Ohio, or in eastern Idaho some, some time ago with tigers who escaped from a place called Ligertown, I think it was, you know, a combination of uh, tigers and lions bred together. Uh, again, if you really examine the details of this issue, I mean, your, your head would spin because of the stupidity of this behavior. And it doesn't even take um, a human error. It can be a natural disaster, a hurricane, an earthquake, a tornado. Any of those things can set these animals loose in communities where they can do untold damage. Carol, uh, you have visitors who come to Big Cat Rescue. Uh, what's the experience like? If I were to show up and, and pay my admission and, and go through, what would I see and be able to do? At the sanctuary, we don't allow people to wander around like at a zoo because we want this to remain a tranquil place for the cats. So we have a daily tour at 3 p.m. where we send out groups of up to 22 people in a group. You'll have a tour guide and what we call a tour backup. So we send two people out to make sure that everybody stays together. And then it takes about an hour and a half and they go around and they meet the 60 or so cats who live here. And they learn about each cat's story, where the cat was rescued from. And that enables us to tell about different aspects. So we can talk about fur farms and circuses and failed zoos and failed sanctuaries. As Wayne mentioned before, there's a huge problem with these sanctuaries rescuing so many animals because that's what brings in donations but they're not thinking about how they're going to take care of all of these extra mouths they keep bringing in until they just implode. Um, so after an hour and a half of walking around and seeing the cats and learning about the stories and their issues, we then take them into our cemetery where we have a granite plaque of every cat who has ever lived or died here on the wall. And we tell them that before a single other cat ends up on this wall, we need their help in getting the Big Cat Public Safety Act passed. And we will give them a card with a little script and they can text the word cats to 52886. It starts a um, dialogue with them, with their congressman. It'll know when they fill in their zip code who that is. And they call their uh, house representative and both of their senators that way and ask them to support the Big Cat Public Safety Act. We have more tours on the weekends than just the 3 p.m. tour, and those are either uh, based around feeding of the cats, where we talk about how expensive it is to feed cats, or we do something called a keeper tour, where the people actually go and help us make enrichment for the cats, and then they watch the keepers hand it out. How do you connect with the lobbying world through Big Cat Rescue? In 2012, I think, or 2014 maybe, we hired our, our first lobbyist, and they did it at a much discounted rate for us. But the reason that we chose them is because he was the, um, the head of public relations when the Republican convention was here in town. And so we felt like the, the Republicans are the ones that are hardest to get onto our bills and we needed somebody who was really well connected. And so that's Jason Osborne. And uh, he's been doing a great job with, for us and um, getting those Republicans on board. Um, 
we spend as much, our annual budget's about three and a half to four million. So we spend as much as we are legally allowed to by law <laughs> on legislative issues. We are restricted a little bit because we do not have a 501c4, we're only a 501c3. So we are a little bit limited there. I personally, and my husband and my daughter, we all personally give to legislative uh, PACs in order to get animal welfare bills up on the radar of our members of Congress because we can't rescue our way out of this. The only way that we will ever solve this problem is legislatively. Carol, anything I've not asked you that you believe our listeners ought to know about your work, the overall predicament for these big cats, uh, any thoughts from you that I've not brought out so far? Uh, the only thing we didn't talk about is what I'm very excited about now, and that is one of the things that people often tell me is that they feel like they need to have wild cats in zoos so that they can teach their children respect for animals. And I just find that laughable that anybody would think that that is teaching respect to hold a wild animal captive. But there is this concept that people feel like they need to be able to have this close interaction with these animals in order to want to preserve them. And so what we've been doing is working on augmented reality and virtual reality and um, creating situations where people are having experiences with camera trapped cats. So that's uh, cats here at the sanctuary currently that were hanging tra camera traps on the side of the, or cameras on the side of the cage to capture those images that are then in 3D when you put on a headset. But the grander goal for that is we have a person right now, our in-situ partner, or our in-situ um, employee is there with 22 of our in-situ partners, and she's giving them this, actually I have one right here on my desk, um, this little tiny camera that shoots in 3D and teaching them how to capture the cats that they're working with in the wild. So it's palace cats and fishing cats and all of the little cat species so that we can create these experiences to rival anything that you would ever see at a zoo so that people would rather have a zoo full of those types of immersive interactions with the idea of it being um, the future of this being that the camera technology will improve. We'll be able to set these up in the natural environments where the cats live and transmit those signals wirelessly to where we can capture that and share the real lives of these animals living out who they should be. And that will be education that you just can't get anywhere else. So I, I'm really excited about the future being in virtual cats, not captive cats. All right, good. Thank you. Wayne, Marty, anything from you good gentlemen before we um, sign off? I just would add, um, thank you, Carol, so much for being here today. It's been insightful for myself even learning from you and what you've discussed here. And I've learned a number of things. And Joe, a little bit of good news uh, going into rounding out the podcast. We just received some information from Capitol Hill that the ROAR Act, Rescuing Animals with Rewards Act, is included in the final spending package that we expect to be signed into law sometime later this week by the president, and that we also see $2 million in funding for the Pet and Women's Safety Act, which is a law that we worked to pass last year in the Farm Bill that would help uh, women who have been abused be able to bring their pets into shelters so that the abuser would not be able to harm those pets or hold those pets hostage. So some good news going into the next week. Thanks, Marty, for that. Uh, Wayne? Yeah, we've got to pass this Big Cat Public Safety Act. It, it really builds on, as Carol mentioned earlier in the show, 
a 2003 statute that was passed overwhelmingly. Democrats and Republicans backed it to stop the trade in big cats as pets. In addition to that, this bill underscoring that there were some technical problems in that 2003 law that the Big Cat Public Safety Act will address. But in addition to that, it will stop this cub petting at roadside zoos uh, where the animals are then almost certainly cast into the exotic animal trade. You know, this goes into the category of bills that are no-brainers. This should get done. And I'm really grateful to Carol uh, Baskin, Howard Baskin, and the entire team at Big Cat Rescue for helping lead this fight. Uh, People should call their congressmen, their senators. Uh, They can go to bigcatrescue.org, sign up there. And I think you have a button on that sign-up form, Carol, that says find your legislators. So it's an easy connection from signing uh, that uh, part of the page to getting contact information for your legislators, call, email. Is there a deadline coming up, Marty, that we need to be aware of? Nothing pressing right now, just, uh, you know, in the next week, if folks could call their members of Congress, ask them to jump on co-sponsoring the Big Cat bill and uh, work more toward that goal in January as well. Thank you so much for listening to the Animal Wellness Podcast. I've been your host, Joseph Grove. Be sure to visit animalwellnessaction.org to find out about all of our legislative efforts, subscribe to our newsletters, and link up with our social media channels. Want to subscribe to this podcast? Go to iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Podbean, and we'll be back real soon with another episode of the Animal Wellness Podcast.